But I'm glad to see you, especially. And uh, I hope we have a good time this morning. I hope you learned something from it that gives all of us a little help and encouragement. So the question is, how does God build faith, generosity, and compassion in a believer? Because there's a way He does it. Acts chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. But a certain man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a possession of land, but kept back part of the sale. His wife was also aware of it, and he brought a certain part of the sale and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, this is a pretty dramatic verse in the early stages of the New Testament. This husband and wife misrepresented the truth about their giving, and God killed them right at the front altar. Uh, this was a big deal. Uh, if you don't read the Bible, I probably need to give you the narrative. People were trying to help out of compassion and generosity the persecuted saints in Jerusalem who were having their land and homes seized by the government. And as a result, the other churches were trying to help. So people were selling their bass boats or maybe a piece of property they weren't using, and they gave it all. And the, cheer, the, the people were cheering, praising God, and excitement when people made these sacrificial things happen to help, to help the poor. Well, Ananias and Sapphira wanted a piece of the action, so they went out and sold a piece of property, got a high dollar for it, nothing wrong with that. But they kept back. It was so much they kept back part of it, and then brought what they had as though they had given it all. And God killed them for lying. And Peter said to them, said, hey, while you had it, it was yours to do what you want with. You could have kept it all. Well, why did you lie and let everybody know, that, think that you gave everything like these other people so you could get applause, and God struck them dead? I was thinking, if God struck people dead today because of giving, you couldn't get enough ambulances in San Antonio to all the churches. But that's, this is sort of a dramatic moment. So, the Bible is clearly saying God takes some things a lot more serious than some of us do. So, let me talk to you a little bit about how giving can become a game. Uh, number one, anytime you make a miracle for money, a mandate, you make giving a game. Uh, we've seen it done on TV. We've seen it done in meetings. If you give this amount, God will do this, as though you could buy a miracle. Uh, a guy at Jack Wallace's church in Detroit, who is now deceased, but uh, told everybody on the night of his offering, took his own offering, and I spoke the night after. He says, if you'll give $100 tonight, God has shown me everyone that does will get a hundredfold in 24 hours. And of course, nobody got a hundredfold in 24 hours. Or because this is the seventh Passover of the seventh month of the seventh uh, equinox of the seventh eclipse of the seventh solar system and the fourth Passover of Nizan, God says that if you'll give $777, He will cancel your debts. <laughs> Folks, please tell me you have a brain. Please tell me you think anything that contradicts clear Scripture is wrong. It's always wrong, no matter how good it sounds. And here's the bad part. Jeremiah says, my people, my prophets prophesy falsely, and my people love to have it so. They'd rather hear a lie than the truth. But you can't, you can't buy a miracle. You can't buy healing. God's not for sale. He doesn't work that way. When you hear people do that, it's manipulative. It's called witchcraft, and it's cursed. 
That's clear. You want to you confront me on that? I'll give you an hour from the book of Galatians and show you that is a curse, and that is called witchcraft. It's to manipulate and intimidate, to dominate, to get what you have illegitimately, not willingly. So this is far from any attitude God would ever exhibit. Second, legalistic guilt-driven offerings turn giving into a game. And it's usually subtle, and there's a balance to this, of course. But there are some things that are inappropriate. It's perfectly right to show a picture and declare a valid need, and then ask people that if God puts this on your heart, thank you for your support. That's a good thing. That's a great—that's integritous, and that's proper. But to tell people to feel guilty that if you don't support my need over here or my particular cause, their blood is on your hands, that's illegal. That is not scriptural. You cannot prove that at all, and it becomes guilt-driven and condemnation. Now, God, who through Christ on the cross removed guilt and condemnation from every single believer, never uses guilt or condemnation to get you to do anything. There is no condemnation to those in Christ. That's a weapon of Satan. And yet preachers and people will use it to manipulate from relatives or people what they want for their own gain. And so guilt and condemnation did not come from God. Don't you respond to that. It ceases to be the spirit of New Testament giving. Or the cop-out because somebody in church or some nonprofit that you know of mismanaged money. Every government, every government agency, every nonprofit, churches, government projects, and Red Cross have had isolated instances of somebody somewhere mismanaging the money at some times and were criminally prosecuted. I'm sad that it happens, but it's not the rule. I mean, even Jesus had Judas, who was his treasurer, taking money out of his bag. But it still does not stop or dismiss me from being generous. Whatever God has commanded me to be and to do still stands. If somebody fakes healing and fraudulently claims people are healed when they're not, I still pray for sick people. New Testament Scripture in James says, if any among you is sick, let him call for the elders, those in authority. Let them anoint him with oil and prayer, pray of faith to bring healing. And we've seen many, many people healed, but we've seen people not healed. Now, we don't go to the extreme and say, I can buy healing or everybody I pray for gets well, because that's a flat lie. Funerals are held every month. So it's not, that's not possible. So I'm trying to say to you, just because somebody fraudulently abuses a truth, don't reject the truth. The truth and God's promise for the truth stands forever. Just reject the pimp that's doing that. Okay? I, You know, I don't have sweet language, and sweet language is not appropriate for a pimp, a a spiritual pimp especially, who preys on good people who have good hearts and to exploit what they have for his own self-gain. It's illegitimate, it's wrong, and you don't have to respond to it, and God doesn't encourage you to give that way, all right? So we don't do that, not ever going to do it. I've learned there are three things people feel they can do better than you. Number one, they can raise your kid better than you. (laughs) Number two, they can do your job better than you. And number three, they can spend your money better than you. Three things that are a given in America. And I've learned over the years, boy have I, you can never make a good deal with a bad man. But it happens. And the fact that some individuals are bad and fraudulent is certainly no justification how I'm going to respond to Scripture. 
If somebody abuses the Scripture, mistreats the Scripture, and is dishonest with it, I'm still going to be honest with it. If God says, if you give, you receive, that stands true forever. But I'm not going to give to that fool. Make sense? Come on, be, interact with me just a little bit. All right. You got to think on this. So then how do we respond? What does the Bible say? Let's look at an occasion where giving went bad and learn a few things from it. First, Ananias and Sapphira chose to misrepresent their action before people and before God. Understand what they did was not private, it was public. They lied publicly about what they were doing. Second, the Bible is direct. There are people who are less than honest. However, the dishonesty of some does not you know, doesn't change the legitimacy of the majority. The majority of people are good, and the majority of people want to do what's right, and, and they're not fraudulent. But you're going to get a fraud, and you're going to get a con man or woman in everything, from government to politics to the church to, to uh, authorities and government, police, whatever. We, we've got it everywhere. Now, why does God put this story in the Bible? You know, He's deadly honest. He'll lift the dress on everybody, even the great guys in the Bible, and just tell you all the dirt on them. He's so honest. He's so open. He has no cover-up. He's just being honest. He's showing that people will do things they should not do. There will always be those who do things in the name of God that are not God. You go back in the Old Testament to a prophet named Balaam. That's just one example. He's paid to say something in the name of God that God didn't say. And if you don't know Scripture, somebody can say, God told me. My ears go up. The minute a person says, God told me, and I'm thinking, okay, let me hear what He told you. And if it is contradictory to the Word of God, it's a lie. God will never contradict His Word. It is a lie. You need to know that, realizing this guy is a false, fraudulent person fixing to manipulate me. So, by having that Word in me, or someone close to you who knows the Word, and that you could say, you know, Rick, this guy told me thus, thus, thus. What do you think about that? Examine it. And I'll say, well, that's perfectly valid. I kind of agree with that. Or that's clearly contradiction to Scripture. Or if it doesn't contradict Scripture and we're not sure, the Bible talks about sit on it. Just put it on the shelf and wait on it. We'll see. There's no big deal about that. But don't let people tell you something God said when God didn't say or do something in the name of God that God didn't do, and it happens all the time. God told me to kill my kid. God told me to, to divorce you and marry you. God told me to yeah, whatever. I think we all hear that voice every, every day, but I know it's a lie. I might listen to it for a few minutes, but I know it's a lie, so I'm not going to do anything with it. Just being real, folks. Just being real. All right. Number three, God emphasizes in this story that the New Testament church was characterized by a spirit of generosity. When you study the New Testament, there's a common theme. People who were Christians, rich or poor, were generous. They weren't fake. They were generous. There was the, it was the nature of God impressed upon each of their hearts. Now, for those of you that don't believe the Bible, let me quote from the New York Times. Yeah. I know we have both groups. It's, it really defines the concept of giving, and it's secular, not Christian. Nicholas Kristof wrote a column in the New York Times where he presented two individuals. And then he asked people across America a question about them, about which was the happiest. And understand the people I'm about to read are not real people. They just represent two types of people. Richard, for example, is an ambitious, white, 36-year-old commodities trader in Florida. 
He's young. He's wealthy. He's healthy. He's drop-dead handsome. He lives alone in a beautiful mansion with a pool, and he's connected and surrounded with beautiful women. Richard's job is stressful. (laughs) I'm sorry. I just, I thought, is it? Anyway. He spent Christmas in Tahiti. He's uncumbered. He has time to indulge in marathon running, reading, writing poetry. Now, remember, this just represents a type of a person. It's not a real person. The second person is Lorna. She's a 64-year-old African-American woman living in Boston. She's overweight. Lorna is on regular dialysis, but it doesn't impede her active social life or babysitting her grandchildren. She's a retired school assistant. She's close to her 76-year-old husband, and she's much respected in the church for directing the music committee and for leading the semi-annual blood drive. Lorna believes in tithing. She gives 10% of her income to her church. And in the last few weeks, she's organized a church drive to raise $10,000 for earthquake relief in Haiti. So the journalist then, after presenting these two people, asked people across America, if you had to choose, which one of these people would you choose to be that would be the happiest? Well, he got responses from all over the country. And of course, the 36-year-old young handsome guy sitting by the pool sipping a margarita with beautiful women and no responsibility was the clear winner. But what respondents did not know was that Nicholas was taking research from the University of Virginia on the subject of happiness. He compiled two people that would represent two types of individuals, and based on what research showed, were the happiest people in our nation today. So after people responded, Nicholas wrote, and he says, but now let me tell you what research says. So here we go. Beautiful people aren't more happy than less beautiful people. Contrary to what Hollywood and magazines show us, every study on happiness that's been done by the secular world, not the church, has shown that average regular looking people can be happy. You can still be happy and not look like Brad Pitt or any other glamour girl. Secondly, every secular study has shown that chronic problems of health will not predict your level of happiness. Being healthy isn't a statement you will be happy. There are plenty of healthy people who are suicidal. There are healthy people that are on antidepressants and seeing therapists every day, and yet they're not fighting through problems that some of you suffer with. Every study majored on three principles as to what made Lorna, the type of people Lorna represents, as the happiest person in America today. Principle number one, people who are highly connected are happier. Lorna is connected to her family, her grandchildren, her husband, and she's connected with her family and friends in the church. Happier people are not sitting by a pool drinking a margarita alone. It's people highly connected with others that are the happiest. There are a lot of things that go on in my life, but my life and joy of happiness are the friends that God has put in my life that really make. Sometimes they're up, sometimes they're down, sometimes they're happy, sometimes they get bad news, and I get to be with them or pray with them or celebrate with them or whatever. It makes my life, and I'm sure my wife and many of you, makes us happy. They, they make up the majority of the joy in my life, being connected to a lot of people. It's, it's not a detriment. It's really great. I love being connected. to so we, Some people have very little. Some people have a lot. Some people come from different ethnic and racial backgrounds, and they all add color and flavor to my life. 
life. Great value to my life. That's why I love such diversity of color and race in here. Every one of you is beautiful in your own way, and every one of you brings a dimension that somebody else didn't. What if everybody were like you? Dear God, how boring life would be. But that being connected is part of God. It's not good man be alone. I know we use that in weddings, but it's, me- it's meant to go way beyond that. It just meant God didn't design anybody to be alone in life. Connections are important. That's why we stress to you, get connected in a small group. Get connected in some team somewhere. Hook up and make some friends. People will add to you, support to you, because you can't connect in a big church. By the way, you can only connect to about 10 people in a small church. So knock off the nonsense, well, a small church is more friendly. Nonsense, not a bit more friendly. It's how many people you connect to that makes it friendly. It's strictly up to you. He that has many friends, Proverbs says, is friendly, must show himself to be friendly. So happy people are relational people. They're connected. Second, people who are highly involved are happier people. Lauren is active in the music group, the blood drive. She's active in her family. People who are happier are highly involved and they're connected. They're serving. They're doing something with what God gave them. And third, happy people are active and aggressive givers. Studies by Secular Research bears this out over and over again. Happy people are just generous. They're not, they're not all rich. They're not all poor, but they're all generous. They go out of their way to contribute and to give, even if they have little or they have much. Lorna was a tither, raising money for Haiti. Now, that's a secular study, and I think it's just great. But long ago, God said the characteristics of a New Testament church would be its generosity, its willingness to give, and its willingness to give up. If you'll look at the hospitals, who started them? Christians. Who built great educational institutions? Christians. Harvard, Yale, Princeton. They weren't built on heathen pagan money. They were built on Christian money. They've been given over to a lot of pagan people now who would deny that God exists, but they were built on our money. Hygiene, care for the impoverished and people who were not Christian, came from Christians helping other people. It was noteworthy about Christians that they loved one another and that they serve others. We've given money to the AIDS Foundation. Well, I'm not supporting AIDS. I'm supporting people suffering with AIDS. I want to be seen as a helper, a server, that somebody that has compassion and cares. It's not about—I'm not put here as a judge. I'm just put here to serve and to love and to give and help people. I remember when that young boy in Wyoming was tied to a fence post, whipped, beaten, and left to die because he was a homosexual, and that people picketed the funeral of a mom and dad, heartbroken, going in to bury their son that had been killed by these, these, these animals, these, 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 guys, these boys, and I thought, I, you think Jesus would be across the street, God hates fags? I don't think so. I think God would be right down there, Jesus with the parents loving them and comforting them in the loss of their child. We're becoming awful mean, folks. Whatever you become, don't become mean. Don't become hard-hearted. One of my great mentors said to me from New Zealand 40 years ago, he says, Rick, if you got to make a mistake, make it showing mercy. If you're going to screw it up, screw it up on mercy, because that's what God does. And it'll come back on you in life. You may need it one day, and it'll come back on you because you sowed it. So if you're going to err, you err on the side of mercy. Long before the University of Virginia did its study, God knew what would really make all of us happy. If He made you, He's the designer. He knows how to make you tick. 
I wonder if God was saying that in your life and my life, there are things that we might resist, but they are the qualities of happiness. One, being connected to a group of people. Two, being involved with those people. And three, being a generous person. It's funny how the secular world validates the things God has already said in His Word. So, giving is a common attribute with people where God is at work. It isn't anything that's it's not, uh, it's not unusual. It's not strange. It's common. It's just the way we are. We're just generous with love, with time, with, our, um, with, with money, with, with our gifts. We're just generous. Whatever we can do to help an individual, well, we'll do our best to do so. Now, Jesus is speaking in Matthew 6, verse 2. He says, when you give. Do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by other people. I tell you, they've received their reward already in full. So, if I only had that Scripture, it would answer my question for me. Notice Jesus didn't say, if you give. He said, when you give, and He's talking to believers. It was just expected. In the mind of our God, there was never a consideration that there would be a group of people on earth called Christians that would ever approach Christianity without a vision of generosity. He said, when. He talked about your motive in giving. He talked about the way you give. And he assumed if you were a Christian, you understood that generosity is the backbone of what Christians do. And we don't just scratch each other's back. We help people who are not Christian. That's always been the mark of Jesus. Giving was assumed. Generosity was assumed. The Old Testament emphasized it. The New Testament emphasized it. God wanted to make us a people of faith, of generosity, and compassion. And to do it, He worked three things into our lives. First, the tithe. Tithe is simply a component of giving. Sometimes people get all encumbered on the theology of the tithe, and they miss the outcome. But the outcome of the tithe is it makes you focus on faith. If you don't believe God's going to take care of you, you're never going to give anything. You're never going to tithe. See, it's a faith issue, not a dollar issue, not a budget issue. It's a faith issue. Can I trust God? And if you can't trust Him with your money, how can you trust Him with your soul? If I can trust Him for eternal life, my God, I can trust Him with my money or anything else I have. So, it's a faith issue. You can never work it out in your mind. Your circumstances won't make it work. The tithe is an issue of faith. Will God take care of me or not? Did you know the only place God says I can test Him is in that? Malachi 3.10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there's food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. See if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there won't be room enough to store it. Scripture says God owns it all, and we just get to manage it for a while. So, the tithe is our minimum requirement. The offering is above the tithe. That speaks to generosity. I don't have to do that. It's as the Holy Spirit prompts me to give to a cause, to, to help a vacation Bible school coming up this summer for a summit. That's, called, that's above my tithe to support one of the kids with a sponsorship so they can go to camp this summer, and we're going to support one too. We always do this. That's, that's the offering. That speaks about learning to become generous. Alms, A-L-M-S, speaks to compassion. That is giving directly to the poor, helping anybody less fortunate than you. 
Remember I said last week, the poor can be at every level, from a, a box under the interstate or a person in church that has a job, doesn't have very much, has a need. And I've got a couple of friends in here who have jumped in and helped people who had a sudden need that wasn't in their budget, and they were able to fix it and make it right for them. Uh, that's, that's, that's alms. That's doing something for somebody poorer than you are. And it's for helping the poor. All kind. We got all kinds of poor people. You know that? We got people spiritually poor and financially poor. We got all kinds of poor people. So three things, the tithe, offering, and alms. So three things God wants worked into our life. A heart of faith that I'll trust God, a heart of generosity, and a heart of compassion. Jesus just assumed it. Uh, I hope in America we don't continue down this trail of of being so mean, hateful, haters, and judgmental, and show no compassion for others. You, you, you don't have to agree with somebody to be compassionate towards them. I've had friends and brothers in here have done some wrong things and gotten themselves in moral trouble, in financial trouble, in legal trouble. That's not going to change my compassion on them. When somebody's hurting, you just feel bad. I feel bad for you. I, don't, I can't stop what might happen, but I can be there as a friend to support, to pray, and to encourage. Compassionate. Some things ought to break your heart, you know? Well, I don't like to see somebody treated wrong. I don't like to see racism and bigotry. It's just wrong. But there ought to be compassion in our hearts as believers towards everybody. I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat or voted for Obama or didn't vote for him or who are you going to vote for next. I don't know. I, I, I was raised in the military, and you honor everybody's office and authority. You show respect. I certainly don't have to agree. I may not respect a person, but I can respect their office. Uh, if President Obama came in today and if you didn't vote for him, I guarantee you this church will be on its feet and we will show the proper honor for that office and that man. And if it's the next person, we'll show honor and respect for that man. That is a command of Scripture. That's not just nice. God says you do it. Uh, an apostle, Paul, had to apologize for showing disrespect to the high priest when he didn't know it was the high priest. And when he found out, he had to apologize immediately because the Bible says, thou shalt not speak evil of your rulers. You can disagree with a, a policy. You can disagree with a, a, some principle or that's being done. But to just hate a person, that's, that's off limits. And so, some people make over a million dollars on the microphone on TV hating. Just hating. And you watch them. I'll go back and forth. Fox. And then I'll go over to CNN. They're all bought and paid for. Each one of them is a bubblehead for, the, for, for, their, for their party. You know, that nobody dares try to be balanced. They use that word, but they're not balanced, and it's not fair. You know, I told somebody the other day, what, have we gone freaking crazy killing everybody? I've never seen so many people killed. Listen, if you're a burglar, but you don't have a gun, and you haven't committed an armed robbery, and I'm going to chase you, and I can't get you, I don't have to kill you. That's not a crime that's punishable by death. Uh, if you're running for, by not paying alimony, you don't shoot with a gun. You can chase a, a person, but if you're overweight and you can't catch him, you can, you can live to fight another day. You can let the rest of the squads of the detect. We know who it is. We got the license. We, we know who the family members are. We'll apprehend him later. But you don't have to kill him for crying out loud. We got to stop this nonsense. Somebody needs to get a brain and think. If, if, if you can be shot for not paying alimony, I bet 25% of Summit get killed and any other church in town. 
You see, well, I'm trying to exaggerate a little bit for effect. I've got compassion. I don't think stupid is a virtue. And by the same token, we need to train our young people how to respond to authority properly, too. You don't threaten and intimidate because you don't like somebody. I, I deal with bad flight attendants. I deal with bad ticket agents flying on airplanes. Not many, but I run into them, and I want to I smart off bad. Did I, I don't know if I ever told you this. I think I did. But I was at LAX, Los Angeles, checking in, and uh, this is several years ago, and the African-American baggage man was taking bags, and this woman got out of a stretch limousine. She had her Louis Vuitton bags. She had several children. She had stacks of luggage. Must have been 12 of them, all designer luggage, and she was rift and snooty, arrogant, and it was not nice. And she was bossing this guy around and being very ugly to him. And he never responded. He was so nice. Yes, ma'am. And he's doing his tickets. And when I stepped up next to him, I said, you are amazing with the control of your temper and attitude the way you were just treated. He said, oh, don't worry about it. She's going to New York, but her bags are going to Miami. I love <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then I got a little wisdom. Don't smart off. You just never know. Don't do that. Okay. So Jesus assumed compassion, faith, and justice. So here's what we know. If God has control of your heart, he will challenge stinginess in any area of your life. You don't get the God who freely gave you everything, who daily loads you with benefits, and then get to remain stingy. That's not part of his nature. Here's the struggle. We've been raised in a world that said, Richard's the man. God says, no, it's Lorna the woman. Every newspaper, magazine, movie says, James Bond, Richard's the man. God says, no, no. If you survey, the happy people are Lorna. So how do we go from living in a world filled with Richard to become like Lorna? Simple. I've got to work at it and create a spirit of generosity. I've got to work at becoming a person who wants to contribute in a world that only wants to take. And folks, you have to work at it because your flesh doesn't want to do it. You have to discipline yourself to do it. If we're going to do it, a few things have to happen. Here we go quick. Number one, you got to be honest. Honest with God, honest with yourself. You got to recognize that when you give, the person that helps the most is you. That's why in Acts 20, it says it's more blessed to give than to receive. I, anybody ever had the joy of somebody gave you something pretty darn nice? Man, don't tell me you didn't do backflips. Sweet Jesus. Ow. Yes. Holy cow. That's happened to me a couple of times. And what an incredible buzz. Gee whiz. Don't deserve it. Couldn't buy it. Couldn't do it for somebody else. Wow. Okay. Now, Jesus said, there's nothing wrong with that. Pause right there. I'm going to tell you that if you can be the person who did that, you're going to get a better buzz than you who received it. It's more blessed to give than to receive. It's not anti-receiving. It's just saying, hey, move up in level where you don't have to keep receiving and start being able to produce and distribute and give. He says, you'll get a bigger, long-lasting high in your life helping other people. It's just a fact of life. Jesus said so. Secular research bears it out for those of you that don't believe the Bible. Research shows that giving creates a biochemical reaction in your body. 
The chemicals that are released are the same that occur when a newborn baby is handed to the mother and she holds that child for the first time. Her pheromones and oxytocin start to flood the mother's blood system. Because at that moment, the mother is saying, I'll give anything for this child. It's much harder to say that when they're 18, because the oxytocin's got to wear off. Dr. Stephen Post, who did studies at 44 universities, said, the habit of giving enhances your overall health by twice. Something happens in your blood that protects your heart from heart disease, the act of generosity of giving. This is secular. Dr. Post said, if it weren't available that any person could choose to be generous and release these chemicals in their own body, pharmaceutical companies would sell it as a pill. See, God wired you to be a contributor. God knew you were wired to help people in life. And because you're wired that way, something happens when you give. You feel better. Have you noticed there are more drug commercials on TV than ever in recorded history? I have never seen as many. You can't watch anything without a drug commercial. So question, what if the joy and health benefits of generosity could be sold in a pill? Watch the screen. Do you find it hard to show love to those around you? Do you find it difficult to be loving to your spouse, children, or pet? Well, now there's a solution. It's called Zolove. Acts of compassion are combined with your body's natural pheromones and oxytocin, otherwise known as the cuddling hormone. Then, presto, you've got the ability to love. Now when I get cut off in traffic, I can't help but feel love for my fellow driver. Snuggling has never been easier. Finally, I can look my kids in the eyes. Common side effects may include lower blood pressure, fewer regrets, less chronic guilt, elevated sense of purpose, loving things that should not be loved, lower stress level, increasing friends, warm fuzzy feelings, and loving your neighbor as yourself. If loving feelings persist for more than 24 hours, consult your clergy as soon as possible. Ask your doctor about Zolove today. <laughs> Woo! Give me that pill. See, if that pill did exist, people in San Antonio, regardless of the economy, would buy it. So God knew a long time ago what makes life work. Be honest. Second, be real. Being real is understanding everything you have is a gift from God. It is not yours. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and all that dwell in it. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, saith the Lord. The cattle on a thousand, it's mine. It's just on loan to you. You're not giving God your money. You're just giving God His money. I took my little girls when they were little bitty, and we'd go through McDonald's and get them a Happy Meal and the little prize for a, a penny. And I think McDonald's has the best French fries in the world, bar none. I could eat a dozen of them right now. Just I won't, but I could. They're just so crunchy and salty and good. And the, and I'd give them to my girls in the back seat. And I remember several times driving through and say, "Hey, uh, Chrissy or Alicia, can Daddy have one? Can I have one French fry? No, mine." I said, but Daddy bought them. I bought those French fries. You, can I have just one? No. Daddy could buy all the French fries in McDonald's. Can I just have one? No. Mine. And I thought, you little twerp. I, uh, <laughs> you won't give me one? Listen, folks, next time God wants one of your fries, don't scream. No, they're my fries. Because everything you have comes from Him. Giving positions you to be involved. Amen in a divine economy. 
And boy, if any generation ought to be frustrated with man's economy, it ought to be us. So get yourself out of this economy into God's economy because it won't fail. It never will fail. Number three, be first. Don't wait to be talked into being generous. Be first. Be generous. Number four, be good. If you're going to be good at something, be good at being generous. Everybody has something to give. Everybody has a way to give. And everyone has an opportunity to give. Be good at it. And number five, be thinking. Isaiah 32, verse 8. But a generous man devises, thinks up generous things. And by generosity, he shall stand. What a great thought. It's thinking about how you can be a generous person. There are three things you can think about when it comes to being generous. Number one, if you know something, share it. That's called wisdom. That helps people. That's generous. If you know something, share it. If you can do something, then do it. Use that gift. And number three, if you have money, give some of it. That's the pattern of the New Testament church. You know something? Share it. If you can do something, do it. Use it. If you have money, you give it. So it's an active group of committed, generous people. The whole concept of Christianity is based on a Father God who is incredibly generous. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes on Him should not perish but have eternal life. Christianity is based on the generosity of a father willing to give his only son and a son willing to give his life for us. Scripture says, no good thing will the Lord withhold from him who walks uprightly. God doesn't want to take. God wants to give. And he just keeps on giving in our lives. So, boy, proof that some of that uh, DNA of God is in you is just a generous spirit. You cannot smoke and be stingy as an old crab. That's not the issue. Generosity sweetens you up. So how can I help? What can we do for that person based on our income, based on what we have, based on our ability? Everybody can do something. Yeah, you can. You can bake something, take it to a sick neighbor. You can do something. Everybody can. So do it. For more information on Rick Godwin and product available, visit SummitSA.com and click on Bookstore.